Welcome to Arconnect Sessions, episode 58. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Ken. This week, we'll be discussing the Le Corbusier tapestry that has finally made it into the Sydney Opera House, claims of Todd Williams and Billy Tien taking museum revenge on Charles Moore's Hood Museum, the continued emergence of live workspaces, the threat of robots taking over our jobs so we can focus on eating sandwiches, and finally, the insanely captivating winner of this year's Evolo competition. So to get things started, we thought we would focus on some kind of blast from the past news, this particular news from Sydney Opera House of a tapestry that Jorn Utzon commissioned Le Corbusier to do back when he first won the competition for the Sydney Opera House nearly 60 years ago. And being a relatively unknown architect at the time, it was pretty fantastic and pretty remarkable that he was able to get Le Corbusier to give him a tapestry, quite a beautiful one at that. But uh, for whatever reason, the tapestry was, well, not for whatever reason, for the for kind of embroiled difficulty of uh, Utzon's design finally coming to be, it came to pass that they actually did not install the tapestry in the Sydney Opera House. Um, instead, it went to Utzon's home in Denmark. And now it's finally going home to roost. Um, Utzon died uh, relatively recently. And so now the tapestry is installed within the Sydney Opera House in such a way that Utzon initially intended. He had wanted a bunch of different art pieces, mostly contemporary art pieces, to be installed within the opera house to kind of reinforce the feeling that he had, the architecture that would give it. I just love this story. I really like this piece, how it touched back on the initial intentions of the architect now having since died, but being able to continue adapting in a way the design to both the initial intent, but also the current situation of now this tapestry is available. And it's a beautiful tapestry. So did you guys uh, get a chance to check it out? Yeah, it is a beautiful tapestry. I absolutely love it. And there's a really great, in the article, there's a beautiful picture of it hanging in Jorn Utzon's uh, office, I believe, his office space or his library at home. Mm -hmm. I can't, it's at his house. Amelia, you hit on the biggest question I have with this whole thing, which is how exactly did he get, you used the word commissioned, but did he, um, you know, who paid for this tapestry that then hung in Jorn Utzon's house for 60 years or 40 years or however long it's been? That was not clear in the article. And I'm fascinated by, by figuring, trying to figure that out. Because when Utzon was, fired from the project and wasn't able to finish it, you know, had he, I mean, I don't want to get all conspiracy theory, but had he used funds from the, you know, the commissioning of the, the project or construction funds to buy this tapestry or did Corbusier just give it to him as a gift? I'm not, I'm not really clear on that, but it is a beautiful thing. And it's, I think it was sort of a glamorous story. Paul, did you have something you wanted to say? You know, I actually had the exact same question. And uh, to be honest, I didn't do my uh, my homework on this story. So I didn't even I, I didn't realize it wasn't brought up. But so I'm curious about why it ended up in in his own personal space rather than why it didn't end up in the opera house as it was intended and commissioned. Because I'd get in huge trouble if I brought home furniture from a project I designed and just kept it in my house. Right, Ken? I mean... What? <laughs> While Ken's staring at his uh, kitchen full of fake meat. <laughs> I always imagine that working as an architect involved getting all types of free building materials and other things just that you would eventually populate your entire home furnishing with. Or at least if you're like my father and the equivalent of taking home plastic spoons from takeout and forming your entire flatware set from it, that the equivalent would be, you know, carpet samples furnishing your entire home. You it's sound like the general manager of the University of Waterloo, <laughs> as, as brought up in the news yesterday. He, yes, uh, yes. Yeah. Well, he was, he, there was, that was for his mother, correct? That he yeah. Was, so he's been good to his mother. Yeah. 
But yeah, I'm glad I totally had the same question about this news piece. I wasn't really sure exactly how, like what the ethics around that were, but maybe it was simply kind of a side weird concern of Utsun's and not of the project necessarily to get these artworks done. And maybe he just kept it kind of hush between them. I don't know. They haven't published the complete request in the letter that Utsun sent Le Maybe there was something like specifically uh, sweet and juicy in there that he promised that might not have had monetary value, but would have otherwise been motivating enough for him to do this tapestry for a guy he didn't know. <laughs> well, if anybody out there listening knows the answer, let us know and we'll we'll thank you on the next exactly. episode with, with the answer. Yes. Oh, I bet you I know the answer. We'll follow through. I have a good... <laughs> so let's hear your theory. Okay, well, I totally forgot this project was taken over and Hudson never saw, uh, saw it to completion, if I understand it correctly. Is that right? Right. So yeah, yeah, I'm supposed correct. to give you this tapestry that I put my, you know, I put myself out there to get from the most famous architect in the world. And now you fucked me over and you want it? <laughs> you want it now? Oh, wait, wait, wait. No. Oh, I'll bet there is a juicy bit of oh, gossip yeah. there. So yeah, anyone who knows. Maybe he took it as uh, as payment. Exactly. Maybe he did. Maybe it was all above board. <laughs> we got to get to the bottom of this. Yeah, we do. Road trip. We do. It's right. unfortunate in a way that this is what we're talking about because the tapestry is gorgeous. I mean, when you just look at it as a composition and the compared to the art that was going on at the time and the Corbusier's architecture, of course, it's absolutely beautiful. I mean, it's it's just it's just yeah. about perfect. Mm -hmm. And there are elements of the surroundings to the opera house and the actual yeah. setting that are abstracted in a really beautiful way. And I think even the Utsun's wife mentions in the article that, from The Guardian, like, just don't you love that red? Isn't that red so yeah. special? And I hate, to, I mean, of course, I'm viewing it through a computer monitor, but she has something there. There's definitely something yeah. incredible about just the, the contrastful color of it. It would look great on my living room floor. <laughs> I know. Just wait. Just wait. Now that that image is out there, we're going to oh, yes. get like... <laughs> You know, cafe press or like printed versions yeah. of Etsy yeah. carpets with that reconstructed on it. Anthropology oh. just immediately. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll investigate that monetary yeah, issue and uh, update y'all about it. But let's move on to some other news from the uh, from the past week. Donna. Yeah, what I've been seeing on a lot on the social media is the 2016 Evolo skyscraper competition winners, specifically the main winner that everyone sort of got very amped up about. I just want to point out first, as a preface, that the Evolo magazine competition specifically says it's not really about designing a skyscraper. And I wanted to quote from their call for entries. Evolo magazine is committed to continue stimulating the imagination of designers around the world, thinkers that initiate a new architectural discourse that could ultimately modify what we understand as a contemporary skyscraper. I mean, so they're not saying, hey, design a skyscraper. They're saying, give us some ideas around the notion of skyscraper. And so the winning entry, which forgive me, please, because I'm completely going to butcher your names, but the, the winning entry was called New York Horizon, and it was by designers Yitan Sun and Jianxi Wu. And they are located in New York, or at least their, their, their entry says they're in New York. And their proposal was basically to dig out, to excavate Central Park completely down to bedrock, and then surround it with the sort of cliff dwellings that would allow more people to be able to enjoy the view across the park. Now, it's completely crazy, of course, and it's not at all a skyscraper because it's obviously doing the opposite. It's digging down. Although I think for people who don't know, and I remember I was fascinated when I heard this and I heard it from Alfred uh, Zollinger of Matter Practice. I, I had never known that the way the bedrock is situated in Manhattan on the island of Manhattan is entirely why there are tall buildings at one end and then the other, because the part in the middle, the bedrock is very deep. 
So it's harder to get footings down for skyscrapers. And the notion that Central Park actually has lots of soil and the bedrock is down deep, what they're proposing to do is to dig out the soil, replace it in other places in the city where there's not much park, and then also allow this sort of cliff-faced dwelling that circles, that encircles the park and allows views across it. And also, of course, keeps that sort of open space within the middle of the city. Alexander Lang has been freaking out over this. Kristen Capps wrote, you know, last week I, I said that Kristen Capps wrote a great very adult measured response to the Donald Trump wall thing. And he also here then wrote a, a very measured response to this, why this this competition entry could not be built in the way it was shown. And then he stopped himself a paragraph in and said, wait a minute, that's not the point of what we're supposed to be talking about here. It's an impossible idea, but you know, it's a, I, I think a really interesting idea to think about, especially in terms of what we do in architecture. We do a lot of cutting and filling. And for people that don't really know those words, cutting and filling is removing dirt from one place and putting it elsewhere. So I think this is a really cool idea within the realm of a competition. Anyone else? What do you guys think? Well, I think at, at certain points, the sky, the whole idea of a skyscraper was impossible, right? And so that's to me what <laughs> the point of the Evolo thing is trying to get at is that there's certain things that are so elemental, such as something like Central Park that we might imagine never being able to be changed or wrought into a new typology. And yes, obviously there's no real <laughs> drive behind completely, I don't know what the entire, what how deep the bedrock down is, but just entirely taking that whole cutaway to Central Park. Obviously that's not a realistic proposal, but I mean, judging by the other proposals as well, it's like, it's a beautiful idea. It's very simple. It's very powerful where people immediately have a very strong response to it. Right. And I think that's kind of just part of the point is to get something that it's not just a lot of attention for a uh, crazy idea. There is actually something kind of like more pushing to the idea than just being crazy. Same thing with the whole drone hive one, which was like the composite skyscraper where I guess- A drone. Yeah, where, where I, as my understanding, the drones would replace and certain units within the skyscraper. So the skyscraper would be constantly reconstituting itself through different drones. <laughs> right. And it's a drone docking charging station. Yes. Yes. I love the Evolo competition because it's it's totally not intended to be taken seriously, which I find kind of funny looking at all the responses to the this winning yeah. entry on on blogs all over the place. It's it's really I mean it's a competition that creates an opportunity for people to explore crazy ideas and present them in a beautiful way. And I think that this project did that. And that the one image that's been circulating that we also published on both Bustler and Arconnect is a really stunning image that takes, you know, a uh, one of the world's most, you know, recognizable cities and completely transforms it. And I love it. I mean, it's it's that's not going to happen. It's never going to happen. But it's an opportunity for architects to just kind of like step back and not take everything so seriously and just look at, you know, the, the possibilities of the imagination of architects. It's also an opportunity for these completely incredible renderings and images that get produced for these competitions to not be beholden to the whole idea that if this is going to be built, it will never be as beautiful as the rendering suggests it may be. And because I think that it's so frustrating in a competition where even if it if it is, especially like a real competition, regardless of how metered or modest the proposal is, there's always a way to flack it later because it didn't look like the rendering. And there's obviously no point in doing that. This is not the intention here. The intention is to make these beautiful images that are realistically rendered in a way, but also there's no reason to get into the hole of nitpicking the actual visual details. Of this hole. Yeah. Which is the whole hole. <laughs> hole. Exactly. I wanted to just use it. And the way I was thinking about this competition, and I'm going to bring it to something incredibly basic and boring, which is pottery. My husband and I collect pottery. And when I first started learning about pottery, 
I had to learn from him because he was trained as a potter. And, you know, there are, there are pots and that are usable, that are functional bowls, cups you drink out of. It enhances your day to drink out of a cup of night. Of- cup of coffee out of a nice mug. And then there are sculptures that are about pots, right? So they're they're not the functional object, but they're a piece of art that talks about the known image of a pot and you enjoy the aesthetic of it through that reading. You enjoy the, the sort of non-functionality of it through the functional understanding of how it would work. And so I see these things that the ones that I really liked actually were ones that got honorable mentions, not uh, they didn't win a first, second or third prize, which was one called Cloudcraft, which talked about making rain with a skyscraper and one called Air Stalagmite, which actually had a cleaning component to filter the air. And I love the notion of something that's skyscraper-like, but is also functional in a different way. I, I think that's a very beautiful uh, notion of skyscraper. And the one had, the Cloudcraft had these renderings that were very Levius Woods that were just very beautiful. So Ken, what did you think? When I first saw this image on the website, I, I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to it because I have a way of like seeing an image and kind of connecting it immediately to, to something I've seen before. So when I first saw this, my my brain immediately went to a Rem Coolhouse in Delirious, New York, and just the way this perspective, this aerial perspective, it reminded me of one of the images from the book, from his book about Manhattan. I know the image, I just can't really spell it out for you. But what I really enjoy about this particular project that I don't enjoy about the other ones is that the other ones are struggling to build a building. And sometimes mm-hmm. what part of the problem that we have right now, especially in New York City, is that we are building. We're over, <laughs> they're overbuilding and not for the right people. So essentially, for me, this gives a space for this kind of quiet repose where you could just kind of take a step back and not think about actual building, but actually think about something that's a little more. So there's a nice reflection or point of uh, reflection in, in this particular piece that I appreciate. And I think Donna was right. I think my understanding of Manhattan was that the reason why the buildings, the skyline is the way it is, is that the taller buildings were actually in the in the areas of where the deepest parts of uh, the island, so that you could actually get down to the deepest parts. So if you look at the profile of Manhattan, my un- that was, and again, it might be a mythology, but it, my understanding when I was in school is we saw, uh, I've seen a kind of cross-section of Manhattan. They talk about the soil depths and their bedrock of Manhattan and almost being a mirror image of the skyline. And that's kind of the reason why the, the, the buildings are situated where they are. So did I have it backwards? Maybe I have it backwards. So this will be another question that we can put out to people. Let's solve this mystery. Why is, why is the island of Manhattan got skyscrapers at the places that it does? Yeah. We all cue the, the hive mind and get them on Yeah, exactly. Do our work for us. Well, you know, the, and the other buildings too. I mean, you know, when I, I'm immediately captivated by this image and I stop and I freeze and I, I spend a lot of time focusing on this particular, on this image and then the detail. But then you go to the other ones and it's not to say that those other ones don't have value. They just seem like I've, I've seen those skyscrapers before in other projects. You know, there's a ubiquity to those that I just don't appreciate. And it just seems like I just don't care how whimsical it is. There's a fantasy and there's a whimsy. This is whimsy. The other one seems like something born out of science fiction. And you can almost take a science fiction model or just make that. And I don't need an architect. This takes an architect to do this kind of thoughtful, <laughs> thoughtful presentation. So That's a really good way of putting it, actually. I like that a lot. Yeah. Thinking, again, holistically. <laughs> I can't get away from the puns today. Oh, you're punny. <laughs> Oh, Donna, I'm tempted to just give you some shameful dead air to, uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> to recognize my, yeah, I'm sorry. I'll well, stop. no, I, I honestly think that this, this proposal, I mean, we saw it with the, 
the uh, Bjarke Ingels Group Maritime Museum, the sunken boat form that is so easy, is also like a very immediate impression of a project. And right. I think that in a way, and especially bringing in the whole mythos of the project that we clearly are a little bit confused about, but that, that, that there is that kind of mythos involved with something like digging into the entirety of Central Park, that that kind of does strike a chord with people in the same way that we love to argue about all these Bjarka concepts, you know? So I think that there right. is something to tie in here that work, makes it a very contemporary project, but in a way that no one actually thinks is going to be a real project, but just also kind of builds on things that we're talking about that aren't as explicit as drones, say so to speak. Um, but now we can move on to a completely, completely otherworldly <laughs> news piece, a little bit more of the mundane world. So we posted a piece about uh, this new PodShare uh, service. It's a new co-living space, relatively new system called PodShare, located in Los Angeles, effectively built like a hostel kind of scenario where you have a bunch of beds in a shared space, shared living space. But this PodShare service is specifically trying to get away from the hostel comparison and trying to market itself more as like a combination of something like WeWork and Airbnb, where you can rent beds in the PodShare or you can rent pods, as they call it. You can be a pedestrian for a day, a week, <laughs> a month, and the rents are comparable to, or at least in comparison to other residential rents in Los Angeles, somewhat affordable. They are less, but they are not necessarily complete steals, actually, comparison. It costs about $900 a month to live in a what is effectively a bunk bed that turns into a desk in a shared space <laughs> in Los Angeles with, I guess, free Wi-Fi. <laughs> <laughs> it costs about $900 a month to do that. And according to a recent statistic, it's about an average of $1,900 a month for a one bedroom in Los Angeles. But of course, you have the whole apartment <laughs> and not just a desk slash bed. And so we, we posted this piece reported on by Motherboard. And frankly, the Motherboard piece is very heart eye emoji about the service. There's really no critical take on it. The fact that these buildings that PodShare is occupying are not necessarily legal. I actually have been to one of these locations for a music show in Los Angeles, and I was speaking to the owner who's referenced in the article, and she had said that before they had run into issues in other locations that they had tried to set up where because they're specifically trying to operate in cheaper areas and areas where they, they don't need to charge market rents, that they are basically colonizing areas that are not zoned for residential use. So in the area in downtown, it was pretty much like a big industrial warehouse that had been outfitted with the equivalent of a bunch of Ikea plywood pods within it with, that would service as the beds and turning into desk spaces. So it's kind of an, you know, it's it's very idealistic. It's bringing all these ideas that are very appealing and, and contagious at this time of shared live and workspaces, community values in this respect, access to transit, pedestrians and pedestrianism. There's a lot of things that they're trying to appeal to here, but no matter how many words you attach to it, Donna, you brought this up, which I thought was a great point, that this is kind of just like living in a crappy student dorm. <laughs> and yeah. at the same time, earlier today, we posted a piece from the UK specifically about how luxury student housing is becoming a huge market that appealing specifically also to a lot of foreign students to be able to say, hey, come to our university because you'll get these amazing student housing options that have like, you know, flat screen TVs and gyms and that kind of stuff. That the irony there is like, okay, you go to school, you get this amazing luxury housing thing. And then as soon as you graduate from school, you have to work in basically a student <laughs> dorm. <laughs> so the irony here is, yeah, ripe on everyone's on everyone's minds. But did you guys have any ideas about how this might be different or just is exactly the same as these other co-work, co-living spaces that we've been seeing crop up? Well, one one difference I see is that this it looks horrible. 
Well, the I mean, photos like, really make it look it, not great. No, I I wouldn't want to spend five minutes in that space but based on the photos that I've seen. I mean, it looks like a jail. Yeah, that's actually yeah. very true. I think you could make really like make a list of comparisons between that and a jail system. And they Including say, the overcrowding aspect. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> especially in L.A., right, because the yeah. people they're appealing to are kind of, you know, the transitioning professionals, mostly in the film and tech industries who are looking for maybe a more permanent location, but also just want, you know, Wi-Fi and a place to crash and might not have so much extra cash. But yeah, it really, I really like the jail comparison, Paul. I think that's a really strong, <laughs> for those who haven't yet seen the images, that's, you know, basically what it is. And they say that because it, as brought up in all the coverage that I've seen um, on Podshare, that because when you're sharing a space like that, things like sex in the house is obviously a concern. And so they say that they oriented all of the beds to have basically a panopticon view so that that doesn't happen. No sex. So there's a shared yeah, so there's a shared policing aspect, which, you know, probably doesn't work entirely. <laughs> what about the rebellious exhibitionists? Exactly. It's perfect for them. <laughs> perfect for them. Terrifying for everyone else. And since they're transient, because they're only in town for a month or whatever, they don't mind if they piss off everyone else because they're working on a movie for a month. They're going to live in that place, have sex and fart all night, and then they're going <laughs> to leave and nobody, you know, nobody else that is still there. I mean, that's a really negative view on it. And I will admit when, I, and I still believe there are some, you know, some, when I was in architecture school, there was a, a, a resurgence of interest in co-housing and co-housing again is something that is on the radar, I think. And uh, the notion of co-housing to me is wonderful, but I think when you, you, you know, there's a very fine line between living in a, like something like a dorm where you all have sort of a shared purpose and you have a shared sense of community through that. And then just sort of housing where you don't really have a private safe place to lock up your stuff. And yeah, it just seems like um, it's very close to a homeless shelter, which that's one of the biggest concerns in homeless shelters is that there's no where to put your stuff. And so people will steal it. I think there's a really, you'd have to be very trusting with a lot of community members to live in a place like this. One would hope that you really could develop a strong sharing community with those people rather than just have a bunch of transient people. And also, I I mean, I think that part of the appeal of co-working spaces like WeWork and stuff is that is that you're surrounding yourself with other people that can be inspiring. And I, I feel yes. like nobody in this space can really be that inspiring because it's like, I mean, it really does come across like, I mean, it feels, judging by the photos, I don't mean to be too judgmental, but uh, just, you know, based on the photos, if you're working here, you're not doing very well. I mean, you're, unless you're, you know, unless you're a, you know, maybe you're volunteering, running a nonprofit or something like that. I I wouldn't want to, you know, I mean, but it's not a, it's not a place where it seems like you're, it's going to be motivating you to, uh, to move ahead. And, and, and I don't, it just, it's, it's very uninspiring. Not the kind of place that I, I, that I can see great work getting produced. So was an architect involved in this? Um, I mean, the thing you can say about WeWork is that those spaces are beautifully designed. They're just fantastic. But I don't think there was someone involved in the pod share, an architect, I mean, a designer. So in the article, it references that the owner who is not a, or not trained as an architect and her right. father have actually designed and built who the builds. spaces. Right. So I, right. and I, and there's no mention of architects. And I think that really the concern is just, you know, everything is very cheap and very very minimal just to just to get the beds that turn into <laughs> that turn into desks. I, I mean, there is something there is something interesting about how in the community aspect, no, you can't rely on anyone being there for longer than a few days. And so the community is very transient. But at the same time, just like Airbnb, you have this system of review checks and balances. So you're both true pre-screened right. and post-screened. Right. But still, I mean, if you're post-screened, you know, at one location and because <laughs> you farted a lot, like... <laughs> 
<laughs> but why not? Why not just stay in a hostel and work at Starbucks? You know, if you need yeah, a place to yeah. live and work, why would you want to work in a place like this? You know, they, they show pictures of people just kind of uh, laying back on on their you know, prison-like beds open to this <laughs> space. I don't see any space in the photos that look conducive to getting work done. Anyways, I, I, I've said my, my piece about that. <laughs> well, 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 we still have to see also whether this has any either patchwork effect or at any has any benefit to the wacko rental market in LA. Because I mean, I think that I get the impression that very much part of this is trying to capitalize. It's in a cynical way. It's trying to just fill a need that there is for people to have exactly. cheaper short-term rentals in LA uh, because it is so expensive. And so even if the alternative really could be a hostel or the rents that they say here, 35 to 50 a night. I mean, there are Airbnbs at that. Yeah, um, that's not a great deal. It's really not. And so that like things like that, it's kind of like, okay, well, what are you really getting for? And I think that there really is a population of people who will want to be with other people who would want to be in this type of thing and that they will make an effort to create a community in the absence of any structural opportunities for it when you really have this kind of prison style. <laughs> See, but yeah. I think this space is a perfect example of why we need architects. Because, I mean, this is, that's, that's what an architect or a designer is what is lacking in this. Because it, the space is completely undesirable. And I don't think that it would, it would require that the costs would, would be increased much to just have good design and create a space that, that people would want to be spending their time living and working in. Because obviously they, there wasn't any attention devoted to the design of this space. And I wonder, too, how much of that is to get things off the ground. And then once they imagine that they'll be getting into like WeWork level of notoriety and funding, that maybe they will be able to invest in those things. But I also don't think WeWork felt like they needed to start out by just putting bunk beds in an industry, in an, in an industrial warehouse. The same thing has happened. Not this same thing. What you're talking about in terms of architects being involved in something on this level, it's happened here. So there are... and. It's just going to sound like a strange one, but um, so there are tap rooms here in Minneapolis and some cocktail rooms. And the ones that are very well designed are, are extreme. They're, they're well, very well attended. And the ones that you go to look like they are the back of your friend's house or their frat house or their garage. And there's like those, you know, those ratty couches you would find in studio that are infested <laughs> with mice. And, you know, they're starting to see a leveling off of their, I think their attendance or people going there because people want experience. They want to have a good experience and they'll be willing to pay a little more for their drink if the place that they're going to has a certain vibe that is more about who they are. And there's a couple of places here where it's so poorly planned that I can see that they're struggling right now. And in fact, I know what a business locally is struggling is when they start putting out Groupons. <laughs> I know that's what it's a good indication for me that they're struggling as a business because they were good when they first started. It was a real. It's like wow, nobody heard of you. Wow, nobody heard about a cocktail lounge. Great, nobody heard about tap rooms. Fantastic. And then when the market started blowing up big time for all of this stuff, people started really focusing on the design, and those who focus on the design started taking clients from those people who didn't give a shit about design. So you could see that this thing that passes off as a place for people to live, which actually, when I look at the images, you talk about prison, I think about like a cattle pen for a slaughterhouse. <laughs> All I want to know is how to get to the slaughter floor. I mean, where are these, you know, these, these people in the photograph, they look so happy and so engaged <laughs> in what they're doing. I, I just, they give me such warmth to want to be there. So all I'm looking for is to, when you start seeing all these people start putting on Nikes and then uh, putting blankets over their head, you know what kind of place this really is. Yeah. 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 
But I think, Amelia, like you said, and this is the last thing I'll say about this, it really does point to a huge problem. And in connection with these very luxury rentals, you know, I stayed in a dorm not long ago because I was giving a talk at a college and the dorm room was nicer. It had a full kitchen. It had all the, you know, private bathrooms. It was nicer than in any apartment I ever rented when I first got out of, out of school. And I think we're facing a very real problem of people not being able to afford to be in cities. And this is a symptom to me of, of that. Right. And this is why the, the whole model is upside down. So the same thing's right. happening here in the Twin Cities. University of Minnesota is, I think, one of the largest campuses by terms of student population in the entire country. And they build luxury dorms all over this freaking city. And the models flip. So you go to a school, you get $200,000 in debt right. with four plus two degree. And then you, you expect these people to go out and be productive workers or productive contributing or contributing members of society and still find a place to live. Well, this is this, this is the effect of you saddling these people with a tremendous amount of debt. They're living like freaking cows in a in a prison waiting to be slaughtered. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I also just my final note is I'm just I'm thinking I'm trying like I'm racking my brains to try to remember whether or not I saw bathrooms when I was there. And I don't <laughs> think I did. I don't think I saw It's a trough. <laughs> Just a, a handy wipes sandbox. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't. I don't think there's ever any excuse to have such poor design, regardless of budget. Yeah, I agree. And I think that they're trying to make, or it, it seems like they're trying to make a point of it being inexpensive and accessible by making it really ugly. And that that's just what it what it seems to me. I mean, not not just ugly, but I mean the way the way the space feels. All right. Should we move on? Yeah. Yes. Get out of a downer. <laughs> exactly. Oh, well, I don't know. Is Paul's yeah. story going to be a downer? <laughs> well, I, I, I think so. Um, apparently. Okay. So recently the other day we posted a link to an article with the title jobs are for machines and life is for people. And basically, I mean, the, the, the concept behind this article is, is based on the idea that artificial intelligence is, is growing at a very rapid, rapid pace. Uh, just recently a, a computer defeated a world champion at the game of go, which represented a, a huge milestone in the advancement of artificial intelligence. Actually, just recently, it was predicted that it would take 10 years for a computer to get to the point where they could defeat a world champion at Go. And that happened just a few months after that, that prediction was made. And this kind of goes back to the, uh, to the theory of technological singularity, which uh, bases the idea that artificial intelligence will eventually reach a point when uh, computers exceed human intelligence and can then progressively redesign and improve themselves. And then, you know, as a result, artificial superintelligence would be beyond the comprehension of humans. And so going back to the story, the idea is that that jobs will start getting taken over by, by computers, allowing humans to live life and eat sandwiches as the uh, as the Jetsons <laughs> image that I that I chose to uh, to include with this with this uh, news post illustrated. So there's definitely some truth to it. Recently, the White House released a report to Congress putting the probability at 83 percent that a worker making less than twenty dollars an hour in 2010 will eventually lose their job to machines. And even workers making forty dollars an hour are looking at a 31% chance of losing their jobs to computers. So 
you know, given that there's already a lot of artificial intelligence in our lives, you know, with Siri, Amazon Echo, facial recognition that that everybody experiences on on Facebook, even Shazam audio recognition, you know, this this stuff is creeping into our lives pretty quickly. So, I mean, it's inevitable that jobs will start being taken over. I, I don't know, you know, what what the world will be like when uh, when this continues at at a, the fast pace that people are predicting. But I don't know if it'll necessarily be as um, as doomsday like as some of the commenters like Orhan commented <laughs> that we'll actually be eating each other rather than sandwiches. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I want to pose this question to uh, to you guys, uh, Ken and, and Donna, who practice in architecture. If computers could take over some of your work, allowing you to take advantage of what your skills and, and your your interests are in, as an architect, what would you want computers to uh, to kind of take over? You know, I did get the Echo. I got the Echo recently. Uh-huh. Wait, what's the Echo? The Amazon Echo. Amazon Echo. It's um, it's a it's a Siri-like device. It's a combination of Siri and a speaker. Yeah, yeah. So it's a little bit more elaborate than that. But what I started to learn in, in trying to understand how to communicate with the technology is that I had to really be precise in how I framed things. So it's forcing me to kind of think about like what would you know? I started as soon as I got it within the first half hour of me trying to play with this thing at work, no less. I started thinking about God, it would be great if I could just step away from my computer, not have my hand touching this stupid mouse and be able to talk to Revit about, you know, I want to draw a wall this long and I want to put it here and I want to put it here. And understanding how precise I had to be with asking Echo a question it was like, wow, how do you do that? How would you be able to, how would you do that in building construction documents? How could you communicate or interface with your, with your uh, software and to create a document that was, that was still from my mind. And the only thing that was different is I wasn't physically touching something and I'm still communicating when I'm moving the mouse around. So, and I'm, you know, we're not so precise with the mouse. We're from, you know, we're going back and forth from detail to line, to this, to building a wall, but how do I communicate so it was really forcing me to like, wow, how, how, how would that happen? How would that take place? So I would, you know, obviously, if I could talk to my computer and build a construction documents just through having a conversation, that would be fantastic. It would, I can multitask on a, a whole different level. I could be reading stuff and, be, and doing uh, the drawing at the same time. It would be great. I think that is totally within, you know, the, the possibility. Sense, I mean, right? yeah, definitely. And I think, I mean, the way that we're progressing, you know, I think technologies like Amazon Echo and, and Siri are very limited right now, but we're going to get past that very soon. I mean, I think just the other day I, I was I was washing dishes and I realized that I had to send my wife a, a text message and I was looking for a, something to dry my hands. And I realized I could just I could just uh, speak to my phone and ask her to do that. And it worked flawlessly. But I mean, sometimes it doesn't. But it's it's <laughs> the, I mean, the computers right now that I mean, the kind of technology that they're using, you know, like in this example with the computer that that beat this world champion at Go. I mean, this this game Go is considered to be the most complex game in the world with more possibilities than atoms in the known universe. That's that's a, a fact. And, and so that that goes what? beyond that goes beyond any kind of like brute force calculations. I mean, that implies that there is a real deep level of intelligence that is being used by by this computer to to beat this this world champion. So I'm going to I'm going to meet someone probably next week who is going to take away my job. And this is someone named Jerome. Jerome is a 3D mobile scanning unit operated by GRMC Consultancy. 
they're coming to the museum to give us a demonstration of how their their walking 3D mobile scanner device will scan the interior of one of our historic spaces in the museum and produce floor plans that I can then use. So Paul, when you asked the question, how would that, you know, could this enhance your life? Yeah, I think Jerome could make my life a lot easier in that way. But that's in my job job. In my freelance jobs, which are the ones that if I did have a universal basic income, I would only be doing the kinds of jobs that are my freelance jobs. I spend a lot of time measuring the existing house, figuring it out, drawing up the plans. And that's time I have to bill when what I want to be doing is designing the interventions. So yes, if someone like Jerome, this robot could come in and measure the thing for me and produce the plans that I could then take my hands and draw over on paper, that would be a great enhancement to my job. And the way that I see the fact that I would, the, the way that I would not lose my job through all of that is that when I'm doing residential remodel work, and this is a very specific world, it's entirely about a good relationship with the client. You know, you're working with a human who wants your help as a human. So while I'm sure that my clients would welcome Jerome into their house to measure for them, they don't want Jerome to design for them. They want me to design for them because I'm a human and I get how they use space and I understand what family means. And, you know, so that's, that's how I, on a very small scale would see this kind of intelligence or this kind of automation taking away part of my job, but not the part that I actually like. Ken, what do you think? Well, you know, I th- it's interesting because some of the comments from the non-humans on the on the piece, <laughs> regarding the piece, the chicken littles of the world, <laughs> you know, it's, it's frustrating to find that anyone would actually, there is, I'm trying to, I, and I was searching my brain and believe me, my brain can't play Go and my brain isn't, <laughs> isn't terribly smart, but there isn't a piece of technology that exists that has actually made anyone's life that much worse off. I mean, Gutenberg Press made, despite everybody saying, uh, oh, it was going to, it altered things for the better. Every piece of technology that comes along makes the world a bit better. It doesn't, there, are there drawbacks? Yeah, but it's not because of the technology, it's because of the user. Right. And, you know, Donna, we already have we already have some measure of what you're talking right. about. We don't go out there. How often do you go out there? I mean, maybe you still do because your pro- the projects that you're dealing with on your in your private life are a little bit smaller. But yeah. I take a laser everywhere I go. Yeah. That right there, I don't have to drop. I don't have to carry a 50-foot or 100-foot tape with me. I don't have to have another person with me. I have a laser that can go 350 yeah. feet. So I can measure my buildings more, much more effectively and get a, a, a measurement that doesn't have to deal with, you know, tape stretching or bending and I don't have to I can get a pretty exact measurement so we're already at that point where the inflection points already happened and it's I think it's only going to get make us better I just find it's so I hear you read some of these comments on the about this thing and if we lose $20 we're not going to lose jobs we you know it's if I understand the second law of thermodynamics it's just a phase change and it's a human phase change. So no one laments the loss of, of typewriters or the people who used to do the typewriting. We have other technologies and we move along. We just keep moving the benchmark for which people have to toil <laughs> and the, the conditions that they have to labor under. We just keep moving that line further along. And those people who may be working today for those $20 an hour jobs, in 50 years, they're not going to be the same people. Does that make any sense? Absolutely. I think, Ken, you're commenting on something that always comes up in these kind of technophobic conversations where 
people think that everything that they've done to that point needs to stay the same for them to stay successful or for them to be able to keep their lifestyle as it going. But of course, things are destined to change. And I understand the frustration around like the myopia that comes with, well, of course, we've had good things happen from technological developments in the past that have not created a net entire forever loss of all jobs possible. In fact, there's this whole entirely new job that you could do. Maybe there'll be like robotherapists in the future that need to like interface between different artificial intelligences that also only can be done through human intervention. Regardless, I just wanted to follow up from Paul's question for the both of you to Donna and Ken, whether there's a task or a part of your jobs as working architects that you feel would be the absolute last thing that an artificial intelligence could ever, ever do. The human connection. Donna is absolutely right. A computer, in fact, most people are, very, are much smarter than I am. So But I would have to believe that the smartest artist isn't actually the best artist. The smartest architect isn't the best architect. I went to school with a bunch of people who graduated high school in honors, in honors classes from high school. They were shitty designers in school. (laughs) They were way smarter than me. They got like 1,500 on the SAT. I barely got 1,100. I'm not the best architect, but I happen to think that at the time I was a better designer. So, I mean, you know, you can't take away the human element. And that's the critical piece is that, you know, there will always be plan drawers who post on the site and there will always be plan books. And I'm not intimidated by a plan book. And I never have been because there are going to be people who want to buy those things. And that's basically an automated, you know, spit out, regurgitated idea about what a home is. But at the end of the day, Donna, you know, working with a client and or me working with my client, the experience for them is going to be that much, much better than sitting down with a computer and say, I want this. They're not going to have that experience. So let me ask Paul, when you asked your phone to send a text to your wife, were you grateful? Did you like feel like you had a, a connection to your phone and you were thinking, yeah, that, that, was, that was such a nice interaction? Or I mean, is there any relationship at all between that? Is it just um, like Louis Duque says, we're satisfied with our product? <laughs> well, I'm a real technological geek. I mean, I really, right. I, I love, I love technology. I love, I love uh, following innovations in technology. I love thinking about what's, what's going to be possible. So when I did that, because I didn't realize at first that I could do that, I would have just grabbed a, a, a towel if I could find one and I would have just sent her the text message, even though I, I don't, I don't type anymore on my computer. I uh, voice, I send everything by transcribing my voice through, you know, Apple's voice transcription service. But I did have a very satisfying feeling after doing that, realizing like, wow, you know, technology has made this very easy. I mean, there are oftentimes that I'm kind of multitasking, doing things that I could have not, that I not, I would not have been able to do a couple of years ago, just because of the way that technology is changing. But going back to this topic, I mean, I personally, Personally, I'm not a religious person, but I do believe that there's something special about people and and that that computers there there is an element of of uh, humanity that will never be replicated by computers, I believe. And I think that, you know, once we reach this point where computers have kind of can take over all of our mundane tasks and grunt work, I think that will provide humans an opportunity to really kind of explore that kind of essence of humanity that makes us unique. Yeah, I can't help but think of Nicholas's piece that we discussed last week on the podcast about the end of work. And Donna, you brought up the universal income proposal that is kind of already being floated in a few countries and a few societies that is very hard to imagine, you know, this utopia, say it's a utopian future of a lot of automated work to imagine that without some kind of also universal income to kind of buffer it and to create and simply that there would be a lot of 
wealth that would be floating around <laughs> in that case, perhaps. What I find really interesting, and this is something that we first brought up when we were first talking about this, and Ken, you mentioned it, and, and Paul with the exchange via the, for the text messages, the, the human experience that is being emulated in these artificial intelligences, whether it's Siri or the Microsoft racist bot that got a lot of news recently, <laughs> it's like that we assume that machine learning will inherently get to a positive end or like the ideal end, that if we just let it learn enough, like the Go system, that it will eventually improve upon the human capacity and best the human capacity. I think there's that those chicken littles are also assuming that it's going to be the opposite, that there's going to be a tendency for artificial intelligence to actually learn the worst of human capabilities and emulate that in a, in a way that might actually get them closer to taking the human jobs, but also make them into worse people, <laughs> if that makes sense. So it's this is all so like, obviously, I'm I'm not the authority in, in this at all. It's just something that I think about when I when all these conversations about machine learning and what is capable with artificial intelligence and besting human behavior come up is that we also should consider the possibility that we could just make some really crappy human beings by making really good AI. I agree. And I think I think that technology makes our lives both better and worse. But I, but as Ken said earlier, it's really our responsibility as humans to utilize these tools and this technology in a way that that keeps it under control. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if exa that's exactly what Ken said, but but I think it's more our responsibility. We can't just rely on technology to to change us. Absolutely. Yeah. Technology is not it's the, the advancement in technology and in, in our society. It's not the, the thing that's it's advanced. That's the problem. It's not the device or whatever the the AI. It's the people actually putting it to use. And, you know, you could look at religion and everybody's blaming blames also, you know, puts a lot of stuff on Christianity. But it's, if you get at the basic sense of essential idea, it's the people manipulating it and, and turning it into something it's not, and it was never intended to be. So if you just look at it from that level, I think that anyone who puts their hand on something has a way of turning it into a tool, turning it into a weapon. Exactly. So shall we move on to the final news piece for this week? <laughs> or should we let a robot decide? Yeah, exactly. Now reading the news for you this week on the podcast is this robot we built. <laughs> So the the piece that we were going to talk about next was the um, uh, the provocatively titled. <laughs> it's almost as if they were getting revenge for what MoMA did to their folk art museum. It's a piece, basically. The New York Times did a, a piece on the expansion to the Hood Museum at Dartmouth College, uh, which uh, Todd Williams and Billy Chen are doing. And there's so many different things I find troubling about this particular project. And actually, none of them have to do with the architect and the firm, because they're tired of hearing the questions about the Folk Art Museum. In fact, we never asked them about the project. They're tired of hearing the questions about regarding the Barnes Museum and all of the problems that were with, with that particular project. But I think what's what's troubling about the piece and about the criticism of the architects is, and maybe I don't want to, I guess, at first when you read the piece, the, the premise is already set up as a negative. I mean, in the second part, like the second, early on in the piece, you don't even get to hear the ideas first and then come to the question as whether or not it's a good idea. It's already presented as this is a horrible fucking idea and you should hate it. <laughs> but here, let us give you the story. So on some level, the Times is, online Times, New York Times is really kind of tilting towards the Gawker-esque kind of uh, presentation of, of the news. So it hits you with the kind of salacious backbiting from a bunch of, you know, designery type people who happen to run uh, uh, organizations. And then it hits you with, oh, 
here's uh, here's Robert Stern for his comment. And he was like, I'm surprised they would do something. So, you know, given what happened to them and, you know, nice way to throw the architect under the bus when he, you know, if you go back and look at the news about the Folk Art Museum, he really never criticized, as far as I can tell, did not criticize Dillard's video. And I could be wrong. So one of the pieces I was looking at today, just to kind of get his impression, he thought it was not a good thing to do. But he was, it seemed to be his criticism was more level at the institution and less at the architects. And this one seems a little bit like, you know, like a little bit of a, a kind of finger wagging shaming of this particular firm who does work in a very thoughtful way. And I thought that, you know, I looked at the project through Google Earth. I have not been to this uh, museum and I've, you know, that's the technology for you. I've been able to kind of get a virtual tour by walking through this particular space. And, you know, whether or not it's a good project, I, I don't know. I can't say there's not a lot here to look at from the Todd from the intervention that Todd Williams and Billy Chen have proposed. But what I can say is having you know with the conversation that we've had and seen the, and the work that we've seen from them is that their presentation of a, an intervention on this site will definitely be a thoughtful and curious and and certainly um, respectful intervention into the project. And and I I find the, the criticisms to be kind of off base here. This is a really hard one. Yeah, because and I think you're absolutely right, Ken. It's the way the article was set up from the headline as if they were getting revenge. You know, they really set up the conversation as like, we have to inevitably compare this to the Folk Art Museum. And there's I mean, a couple of things I would think about is that the Folk Art Museum was uh, a Gesamtkunstwerk, if we can say that. And sorry, Alexander, because I'm saying that all wrong. Gesamtkunstwerk, right? It's a it's a completely conceived total project all on its own, despite the fact that it was on a very boxed-in Manhattan site. This museum, the Hood Museum, is already a collection of a, I think, a 18 or early 1900s stone masonry brick pile kind of thing and a 1962 piece. And then Charles Moore, who I am a huge fan of Charles Moore, he did this piece that sort of connected those two buildings and created an exterior courtyard. So in a way, it, it's harder to critique this as taking down of one singular building because it's not. It's already an accretion over time of several interventions some of which will continue to remain and some of which won't. I will point out that one of the New York Times articles that was, or one of the articles that was linked to in the New York Times article was a review that was written of this Charles Moore piece back when it was built. And one of the main criticisms was that that entry gate feature, which is the part that's definitely going to be taken down by this intervention, does not succeed very well, that you walk through it and you're very confused as to where to go. So despite the fact that it is Charles Moore, whose work I love, and I think it's incredibly humane, you know, it's a piece that in the original criticism of the building was said to not be a very well thought out or, or, or successful piece. So I think that it just calls for a much more nuanced sort of consideration of what the role of the architect is. And like you said, we know from their previous work that Todd Williams, Billy Chen are capable of doing very thoughtful uh, slow, <laughs> careful interventions that deal with more than just making an, a single iconic structure standing in the middle of an empty field, right? Yeah, and they've done they've done this kind of thing before, didn't they? I thought that their um, addition at um, Cranbrook didn't wasn't that it can, it, it, it connects to, to it connects in other other parts of the building of the campus, yes. Yeah, I, part of the, and the, I mean, you know, if you want to start looking at criticism, if you look at the site plan through Google yeah. Earth, right, this is ridiculous site. I mean, there is absolutely no room it's for tough. growth on this project. So, yeah, it is 
be, it's really, I was looking, I'm going, where do you expand? So what, what is the institution supposed to do? Stand still for eternity because we love this particular architect? I find the gate to be problematic. It's this really strange aperture and you get into a courtyard and you're absolutely right. I had no way, there's signage telling me how to yeah. get into the building. And I'm like, I'm winding up. I'm like, am I sure I'm supposed to go up that thing? And I finally get up there and that's the door. That's the entry into this important piece of architecture. The courtyard in and of itself is not someplace I'd want to be. It's a, it's a pass-through space, you know, but at the end, in the, in, when I started scanning around looking again through my technology device and giving me the Google street view kind of look at it, I go, you know, what is the responsibility for universities and facility upkeep? I mean, this building looks like it's, it's turning into shit. There's like so much issues with either water penetration or br this building is not that old and it looks dated. I mean, you know, from just, it feels like wasn't well cared for on the exterior. And I go, you know, part of the responsibility, and I think part of what happens is that people who run these institutions walk around and they start seeing things that I'm seeing, like, ah, that building looks like crap. And this is, you know, how do we get people to come to this school? How do we charge students more tuition? Well, we put a nice shiny building and, and, you know, they don't do a good job of keeping the buildings they have going very well. So I'm like, I fear that, you know, 50 years or 30 years from now that this will be another building that gets knocked down, another Todd Williams and Billy <laughs> Chen building and it gets ripped apart because this university clearly, it's a, isn't Dartmouth an Ivy League school? I mean, clearly this institution isn't capable of handling the buildings they have right now because they certainly treated this building like shit from the get-go. <laughs> Bring the jersey, Ken. Bring the jersey on those people in uh, what New Hampshire. <laughs> is that where it is? Dartmouth is in New Hampshire, right? Yeah. I do think that's a, actually a really good question, though, is what kinds of buildings do we build and how do especially institutions like universities, what's their responsibility for maintenance on these things? Because it is, it's it's hard. You know, you take the beautiful picture on opening day and then unless you really have a committed fund for maintenance or, you know, a benefactor, it's, it's hard to maintain a lot of buildings. And unfortunately, in the mid 80s, when I think Charles Moore, I, I believe the late 70s or early 80s when this was built, those weren't such big concerns. So, sorry, Paul, what were you going to say? Well, I was just going to, I mean, make a point, you know, in the sake of fairness and, and a little, uh, you know, devil's advocacy to say that the building is problematic is actually very similar to the primary criticisms of uh, the Folk Art Museum was that the building was yeah. problematic. So, I mean, what is the difference here? Do you think it's subjective? You know, I don't, I don't, because if you remember where that whole thing was going down, so, so the um, Dillers Cafidio Renfro, they did that presentation and they showed some compelling images, which they probably shouldn't have shown publicly because architects right. saw the beauty in some of those interventions that they created. So there was spaces created when they were looking at trying to rework the existing building that they didn't think were, were particularly beautiful. But most architects actually yeah. thought those were particularly compelling. And then the idea that they, you know, folded in with the other ideas about what they were planning, you know, what they wanted to do and how they wanted to approach this. And then the ultimate end conclusion was the building was scrapped anyway. So you could just, the idea that there's nothing, I'm not saying this, there's nothing here being done. There is something being done, but the they're not ripping out the whole building. Buildings get added to all the time, as, as Donna's pointed out. This building is added to other buildings. And, you know, I don't think that the, you know, I don't think there's anything on this planet that can't be added to. And I, I find the I, that particular idea very compelling. 
because there's too many structures or too many buildings that we have, homes or anything that we place on this kind of on this spe- in this special hollow hallowed ground that we don't think should be touched. And I go, bullshit. <laughs> We're architects. We're already cutting into the earth. What's a building? Yeah. You know, my my sense here would be, frankly, because again, I am a huge fan of Charles Moore. I really love his work. I think it's very human scaled and idiosyncratic in a way that doesn't get nearly enough attention as far as I'm concerned. But the sort of um, 18, late 1800s, whatever, Victorian brick masonry stone pile next to it that was the original museum. I would say knock that thing down because there's a lot of those in the in the upper Atlantic seaway. And um you know, the problem there would be lots of lots of people would get very upset if you knock down this thing that's clearly a very historic building, even if it's not significant in any way. It's just because it's old. It's old, so it's earned our respect. Personally, I would say knock that thing down and have Todd Williams, Billy Chen attached to the Charles Moore building and make the whole thing work. I think that could be that could be very cool. Okay. Well, I think uh, I think that's it for for this week's episode of Arconnect Sessions, unless anybody else has any final words. I approve of this union. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks to everybody out there for listening. Uh, If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our new account, Arc Sessions. Not that new anymore, actually. Or with hashtag Arconnect Sessions. You can also send us an email to connect at arconnect.com. And uh, please consider rating us and giving us a review on iTunes if you feel so compelled. Watch out for our next Arcanex Sessions one-to-one episode. Those are released every Monday. Amelia, who's up next? This week, we have a very exciting guest, Richard Kim from Faraday Future, the experimental new electronic car design company that, in fact, Richard Kim was the prior designer for BMW and, in fact, designed the car that Paul drives, the i8 and i3 series. So just he's a, he will be the guest on our next one-to-one this coming Monday. April 4th. I look forward to listening to that. Faraday Future is a very exciting company that is promising quite a bit. So the world is eagerly awaiting to see if if they will deliver. Start biting your nails now in anticipation of the podcast. So can I just uh, point out that last week's one-to-one with um, family from New York City, which includes the one of the partners is Oana, whose last name is, uh, I'm forgetting her last name now, Oana Stenescu, who... I just want to point out that, that, you know, this is someone who I've been aware of since she was a student because she had a student blog back on back in the day on Arconnect, didn't she? Or she she was she very did. active in the forums when she was a student. And she was, um, you know, I, I feel like this is someone who I've been involved in Arconnect long enough now that I can actually see the trajectories of people from engaged students asking lots of questions to, you know, designing stage sets for Kanye West and being interviewed on One to One. And it, it was a wonderful, wonderful conversation with them about how they think about practice and, and the work they do. And it was it was a great interview. So for anyone listening to this who was back on Arconnect way back in the day, you know Alana. You've, you've seen her around. Yeah, yeah, I second that. Definitely check out that interview. It was really, really good one. I, you know, I can't think of too many people that have made such an impact on Arconnect as, as she did with her blog. There was something about the style of her writing and there was uh, there was something unexplainable about, about her contributions on Arconnect that just really touched people. And she, she developed quite a, a following and a, and a deep level of respect among, among uh, the readers way back then. I mean, that was a long time ago. That was about 10 years ago. At least. 
Yeah. And if I remember correctly, she was pretty, I remember her before she had her blog because I still remember her applying to, I still remember, I had this recollection of her talking about applying to schools. So, and everybody kind of like, you know, coming together and kind of giving her advice because I, I forget where uh, Romania. she's from in Europe. Romania, but, yeah. right. I just remember Romania, right. And she was- So see, that is the connection. That's the networking. That's the way that robots are not going to be able to make that happen. It's humans talking together about things and yeah, answering questions for people and helping them out and forming a community. So yeah, screw you robots. We're going to have a <laughs> forum where we're going to talk to each other about our dreams. <laughs> and and also, I mean, we have, to, we have to say that her partner, uh, Dong, which I believe is just yes. a partner in, uh, in work. Yeah. He was also in the interview. <laughs> oh. Yes, he was. Yes. And I thought, I, I actually thought that one of the most interesting things that they talked about was how they came together as, as business partners by just recognizing this kind of uh, strangely successful way of working together when they both worked at Rex. I thought that was a really yeah. interesting kind of origin story behind, behind their, the formation of family. Yeah, it's a great interview. Hey, can I talk up one piece that that I saw come up today on the on the site real quick? Yeah, I mean, as an example of probably a better uh, idea about co housing, there was a great piece I think you guys put up today, or someone put up today on LGBT generational housing, which I thought was you know I couldn't I can't recommend those kinds of ideas uh, more. I mean, it was uh, it's such a compelling idea and probably absolutely necessary at this point in in our culture that we have these kinds of co housing for for groups of people that have been have been marginalized and continue to be marginalized and, and are and are at threat of uh, a lot of situations in this country. So I thought that was a great piece to as a contrast to the um pedestrian <laughs> also in LA. Thing. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, uh, thanks, Ken. Yeah, we'll post that to the show yes. notes and to give people some, yeah. some context. Somewhat related a little bit, I think, to the story that you just posted, Amelia, right before we got into the recording room to do this uh, with the uh, the women-only Uber service. Yeah, that piece we'll also post a, a link to. Um, it was a proposal from actually a, a couple of companies that have kind of simultaneously come up with this idea for female-only both drivers and passengers for these kind of rideshare on-demand uh, Uber alternatives. And it's a really interesting proposal because, of course, these are proposals coming out of a really good place with just the intention of safety and care, but at the same time are very much written <laughs> written into the law as completely discriminatory for those exactly. things to exist. And it's also very much embroiled in any type of cultural debate because say you have uh, in places in India, you might have or other places in the world, you have all female public transit infrastructure because of this already intractable cultural distinction between men and women that makes it impossible to create a safe space otherwise. And I'm realizing using that word safe space is already putting me into a dialogue with another kind of conversation that we just can't get to <laughs> at the end of a podcast. But I think I want I was really glad to post that piece because I feel really kind of icky about it, especially that the origin story was from, I believe, the CEO or the president. Um, they have the same last name, the CEO and the president, but I'm not sure if they're heterosexual married couple. But anyway, the the male leader of the company said that the origin story for uh, on the website cites an origin story for the company as being imagining all those Boston college girls getting into the wrong ride sharing car. What would happen to them? And also his two <laughs> teenage daughters, you know, like fearing basically it was very paternalistic, very just like, yeah, oh, yeah. no, 
At yeah, first of all, I was like, what if you get into the right, wrong wide sharing car anyway, if you have all women ones, like you're still right. in the wrong one, it doesn't solve anything. And so I felt very, I had some icky conflicts about this piece, but I'm really glad to to talk about it and have, have it be in existence for people to talk about because it does bring up a lot of important issues. So maybe that's a whole other thing that we can also approach on another podcast episode. Yeah. Next week. Next week. God. We live in interesting times, don't we? Oh, yeah. I have a lot of baggage from going to an all-female school. That's all I'll say. <laughs> but it's baggage that will serve you well as you travel forth on this journey of life. Yes, it Amelia. is It is my character baggage. <laughs> and it's good. It's good. <laughs> all right. Oh, nice, nice talking to you guys this week. It's been very broad-ranging. Like, Yeah, absolutely. Paul, do you have any other final sign-offs that you have to uh, do this, the station ID of sorts to call us out here? Uh, no. So uh, until next week. Until next week. Until next week, you guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Bye. Bye.